are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, you're going to introduce us to the idea of dropout. Tell us what that is. Yeah, that's right. For my first episode, I was kind of keen to talk about dropout because I think it's one of those classic Hinton ideas. He's not the only author on the paper, but... uh, (laughs) I think the field is sort of largely driven often by an insight that Jeff Hinton has, which which makes a change. And then the, the, a lot of us end up chasing around afterwards trying to work out exactly uh, why it is that it works. And, and Dropout's a classic one. Um, I guess the intuition is, as described by Jeff from my memory, one of the things about Jeff is when he describes something, you really feel you understood it. But afterwards, when you try and describe it, you're not quite sure if you can. Uh, so let me give it a go. So... You want to really train these very large neural networks, but one problem is you get overfitting. And so the idea with dropout is that any one time you're only training half the network or the proportion of the network you decide to train changes, but originally uh, it was half. And you basically drop out some of the neurons in the neural network. Now, I think this works because what you're doing is you're sort of adding redundancy. So you're sort of saying, well, it doesn't really matter. I think that's the intuition. It doesn't really matter which of these uh, neurons or nodes I have available in my network. I'm still going to get the generalization performance. And as you train, you ensure that happens. We can see examples of that in evolution as well. If you look in biological systems, if you knock out some vital portion of the system, often some other portion of the system, some other compensates. And I think that maybe that's why Jeff had this sort of insight. What I think is interesting about it is the way, as with many of these insights, uh, we end up trying to chase it down and, and formalize it. And in particular, you've seen work by people like Yaren Gal and Zubin Garamani that are uh, trying to reinterpret uh, dropout as a probabilistic algorithm, which I find very interesting because once you've done that, you can build upon it. And particular ways that they choose to build on it is uh, in the area of active learning, where you're trying to understand what examples you want to look at next. So they take a trained network, which wasn't trained with a notion of uncertainty, but they reinterpret dropout as a way of including uncertainty. And uncertainty turns out to be vital in uh, this area of active learning. And that, again, has a long history. So if you go back to 1992, there's uh, work by David Mackay on information-based objective functions for active data selection. And uh, other work, Query by Committee, these are, these are really interesting papers by Sebastian Sung, uh, Manfred Affer, and Haim Sopolinsky who, um, particularly the query by committee, is an interesting one because it really looks at active learning as a challenge where you've got a number of actors, a number of elements in a committee trying to make predictions, and it asks for a new data point to be brought in where there's most disagreement between those committees. And that really maps on nicely to the recent work of uh, Yaren Gal and Zubin Garamani, who are sort of uh, doing the same thing with dropout. And that's a sort of, so what, 92 to 2017, that's 25 years ago. And it shows that the theory sort of stands the test of time. But it's also that intuition you need. And I think that's the wonderful thing in machine learning, that you have to have the combination of an intuition, but then you want to follow up hard with theory. You can find more about dropout and the papers we mentioned on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Listener question this episode comes to us via Twitter. In statistics and machine learning, what does inference mean? So, Neil, can you walk us through that? When we talk about inference in machine learning and statistics, what are we talking about? That's a good question. 
terminology is an interesting thing. It seems to mean different things to different people. Like, what does a word mean? Well, what people agree it means. And one challenge in very technical fields is the same word ends up meaning different things uh, to slightly different groups in the field. Inference is very interesting because I only just recently noticed that uh, in deep learning, it's being used to mean what I would refer to as prediction. So mm. in deep learning, people talk about training and then inference. I even saw the word inferencing, which uh, <laughs> gave me the shudders the other day. But that's not how I would traditionally use it. But you see it used a lot like that now. So what they mean there is I've got a trained neural network and now I'm going to do inference, which I would say is make a prediction. So um, if it's a speech recognizer, then uh, makes a prediction about what the word is or makes a prediction about what's the object in the image. And to me, that's a new usage. I don't quite know where it comes from. It may have been hidden somewhere, but it's slightly confusing because it's very different from what we mean if we sort of say something like Bayesian inference. So in Bayesian inference, uh, it's normally the process of finding the posterior distribution over the parameters. Mm. So um, in Bayesian inference, we use a prior, we use a likelihood, and very often we're interested in the posterior distribution over the parameters or over models or, or some quantity of interest. And uh, that's what we mean by inference in Bayesian inference. And that leads to other terms like variational inference, which is an approximate way of doing Bayesian inference. But then still again, I think the meaning in statistics is slightly different again. So when people talk about statistical inference, they may often mean more classical techniques like hypothesis testing. And it's being used to contrast against descriptive statistics, which are just summarizations of the data. So in statistical inference, you're sort of going beyond the original data there, trying to say something about an underlying model or parameter. So it's a bit closer to the Bayesian inference term. And maybe there's some way in which all these three different uses interconnect. But uh, I think it's the same as with any um, term. If a term is being used in a confusing way by someone, then don't don't jump to the conclusion that they're me having the same meaning as you because machine learning is one <laughs> of those great fields, which is like a melting pot. There's a lot of people coming together who use words in different ways. And so, you know, don't worry about it too much. Just try and get a sense of what they really mean because as we've just seen there, there's quite a few different interpretations for what inference means in different contexts. So beware of context and compatibility. Absolutely. I mean, I think and because the worst thing is when in cases like this, where someone's using, for example, if I was talking about deep learning and if I was talking about inference, I might mean the inference of the parameters in a Bayesian inference way. And if someone mm -hmm. else is talking about prediction, they mean something different. And if we don't listen carefully to what we're saying, we end up in a big argument when we're actually saying the same thing. And, and that happens a lot between closely related fields. So um, it's just, just something to watch out for. I mean, in the end, the field's likely to settle on particular terminologies which are consistent. But particularly where these things are all coming together, you tend to get these little dislocations. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Our guest on this episode of Talking Machines is Jennifer Chase. She's Distinguished Scientist and Managing Director of Microsoft Research New England in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which she co-founded in 2008, and Microsoft Research New York City, which she co-founded in 2012. We asked her the first question that we ask all of the guests on our show, how did you get where you are? Oh my, that's a long one with me. My academic, well, my career path has been very varied. I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor, so I was first a biology major, 
And then I fell in love with physics. So then I was a physics major in college, so I was a double major. And I also did a lot of math, very little computer science. One computer science course in 1975, Fortran. <laughs> okay. And then I went to graduate school and got a PhD in mathematical physics. And then I was a postdoc in math and physics. And after that, I became a professor of mathematics at UCLA for about 10 years, a little longer. And then 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago now, I went to Microsoft to start the theory group, even though I knew nothing about computer science. <laughs> so I was a kind of strange choice, but I had gone to grad school with the founder of Microsoft Research and uh, the first CTO of, of Microsoft, technically, uh, Nathan Mirvold. And he had this crazy idea that because I was studying phase transitions in computationally intractable problems, that I would be a good person to hire at Microsoft. <laughs> nice. Excellent. And then you also founded the New England Research Group, NERD, which is, I think, the most fabulous acronym in, in all of machine learning, and its sister branch in New York. Tell me about founding these groups. So, uh, yeah, I was in Redmond for 11 years, and I ran the theory group there. And so what I had done there at first was bring together math and physics. I built a group that was math and physics and then theoretical computer science. And then I thought about maybe 13, 14 years ago that it was going to be very important to build groups in the areas at the boundary of the social sciences and the computational and more mathematical sciences. And so I tried to hire some economists at Microsoft Research in Redmond. And a lot of economists were very resistant to moving to Seattle. And so I began to think, you know, where are there great economists and social scientists? And Cambridge is just a fantastic place for this. We have MIT, we have Harvard, we have the National Bureau of Economic Research. And so I wrote up a couple of page pitch saying that we should start a lab in Cambridge and bring together mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, and social scientists, including economists. And amazingly, Bill and Steve bought it almost instantaneously. <laughs> And so, you know, a couple of days after it was pitched to him, I was told, okay, you know, six months from now you're opening a lab and, <laughs> and you have to move and you have to hire people and you have to figure out what you're going to do. And so my husband, Christian Borgs, and I, and he helped found the lab with me and we worked together on everything. We can talk more about that. Uh, so we just really hit the ground running and... Uh, postdoc candidates whom we'd been interviewing for positions in Redmond. You know, I called them in January and I said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. <laughs> the good news is that you got the postdoc. The bad news is maybe bad. You got it in a different city than you had applied. <laughs> and, you know, and so we just started from there. We started with just a few people here in the NERD, <laughs> which is the New England Research and Development Center. So we're MSR New England and this building, which houses also product groups for Microsoft, is called NERD. And I was actually responsible for naming it. 
I did it as a joke. They were saying, what are we going to call this? <laughs> and, I, you know, and I just said nerd as a joke. <laughs> and, and it stuck. So um, trying to get the New York area, which doesn't quite have a research and development center yet, but may at some point soon. We just have research down there so far. I'm trying to get that named NYRD, so kind of a Leonard Skinner-ish nice. nerd. Slightly cooler nerd. The New Yorkers <laughs> think of themselves as slightly cooler. Anyway, so I started this lab about nine years ago, and I guess it opened eight and a half years ago, and we've hired great computer scientists and economists and social media scholars and computational biologists, and it's just fantastic. I mean, it's a wonderful, very interdisciplinary environment. And we have a lot of visitors here. We have about 300 visitors a year, anywhere wow. from a day to a year, you know, so a sabbatical visitor might stay for a year. And then we have other people just coming in to give a talk. We have students who stay for three months with us and collaborators who come in for, you know, short to longer periods of time. We have some people from the local community who spend a day a week with us, you know, mm-hmm. faculty who spend a day a week with us. So, uh, yeah, it's a very interactive group, very, very interactive. And over the years, we've just had so many amazing postdocs who now are faculty everywhere. And then five years ago, we heard about this amazing group in Manhattan. So there was a Yahoo Labs in Manhattan that was just fantastic. They had a very unfortunate incident where the CEO said that he might let some people go. And of course, although I don't think he actually let anybody in that lab go, they started to look and everyone started to look at them. And, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon and LinkedIn and eBay and local universities were all making offers to these folks. And of the 15 researchers in that lab, we were able to hire 13. Wow, transplant. Yeah, which was just amazing. I think one of the reasons is that when we went down there to speak to them, we all spent the couple of days before making sure that we had read their papers and that we understood their research and knew why people thought they were so great. And they liked that, that we weren't just trying to tell them to come to a company, but that we understood who they were as scientists. And so that was the genesis of Microsoft Research New York City, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's more than doubled since that time. And so that's an amazing group, which is a little more computationally oriented than mm-hmm. the New England group, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of the same areas. So it has machine learning and computational economics and computational social science and just fantastic people. And the two labs interact with each other a lot, and they've they too have a fantastic postdoc program, you know, which has now seeded some top universities. And so it, they're great labs. They're fantastic. really great labs. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the really important things about Nerd here in Cambridge is that it's been such a focal point for the community that's very active in the community. And it's a great place for collaborations to happen. It's sort of that's the of a huge power that it has here. How have you seen that evolve over over its lifetime, over its existence? So we had hoped from the very beginning 
that this would be a place, that NERD would be a place where people came to meet each other and to collaborate with each other. And I know I have a lot of colleagues from universities who say to me, you know, I never go down the hall or I never go to another building, but I come here and I'm sitting with someone from a different discipline, maybe from my own university, maybe from another local university, maybe a Microsoft researcher, maybe someone from a local company, you know, and we start talking because you get away from all the things that are what you do every day, day in and day out. And so we really, I've always wanted to set this up as an environment in which people discuss not only the technical things from their disciplines, but also the values of their discipline. Mm -hmm. What are the questions that they care about and why do they care about them? Because I think that is one of the biggest obstacles to working with people from different fields is that um, you don't even understand why they're asking the questions that they ask. Mm. And so I think that over time, what happens is that you build up really deep collaborations. I don't try to make people collaborate at all. I just, I do want them to talk to each other. I do want them to know what others are doing, but I think you don't force collaborations. If you just let them happen, they're going to be much deeper. Mm -hmm. And there have been some great examples of that. Like we have uh, an anthropologist from this lab, Mary Gray, and a computational social scientist from the New York City lab, Sid Suri. And he was trained as an ML person. And uh, Mary was doing field work, anthropological work, on Turkers, uh, and so she was trying to understand what we now think of as part of the gig economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, she went, she spent months and months in India, she interviewed hundreds of people, and she kept hearing that these Turkers were talking to each other. Huh. You know, they were, and she mentioned this to people, and they said, you're crazy, we would know it if they were talking to each other. And Sid told her that she was crazy, and then um, she said, no, this is really true. And so she started working with him, and they instrumented it, and they found that, indeed, there are these networks that wow. the Turkers have, and they interact with each other. And so all the models of how they behave and how you should engage them were wrong because they were assuming that they were acting independently and they were actually all sharing notes, you know, who's a good employer, who's a bad employer, whatever. So all the assumptions were wrong. And that became the genesis of a deep collaboration between an anthropologist and a computational social scientist. So cool. You know, That's so there are, those are the kinds of things that take place which are really magical, which wouldn't happen if you just said, oh, I want to see how many collaborations you can do. Mm -hmm. Right. You know? Yeah, definitely. And I think this is something that more and more people are interested in as the sort of search for untamed data sets moves further and further out. What would your advice be to someone who um, maybe hasn't collaborated with someone outside of their field before, but is really interested in taking that step? So I think, I mean, in my own experience, okay, I you know, I started out as a physicist, and I was a professor of mathematics, you know, and then I ran computer science groups. And, you know, I've done some economics papers and some biology papers and some social science papers. And I'd say that you have to bring something to the table. Mm. So you have to bring your own skills to the table. And then people are actually very, very happy to work with you. Because, 
you know, they may have data sets, they may have a domain expertise in an area like biology. I mean, when I do computational biology, I always work with biologists because mm. as a physicist, mathematician, computer scientist, I can come up with crazy, simplistic models that would have predictions that would be ridiculous to a biologist but would seem fine to me. And so I think the thing is that you bring your skill set, you bring your way of looking at the world to these people in different disciplines and to these data sets, and there's value there. Mm -hmm. So I, I know um, I'm working now in a field called graphons, mm -hmm. which actually my husband Christian came up with the name graphons. It started about um, 12 or 13 years ago. We were working with John Hopcroft and Shangla Tang and some other people on trying to come up with algorithms mm -hmm. that would get rid of web spam on the World Wide Web. So if in your search engine, you know, you can put these links in that will make your website rise mm -hmm. in, in page rank, but they're just done by these so-called search engine optimizers mm -hmm. that are really spamming the, the search engines. So anyway, we were coming up with things. We were talking to product groups. And coming from my and Christian's background in physics, Christian Borges is my husband, mm -hmm. our backgrounds in physics, we thought when something gets really big, and the World Wide Web was really big, it's even bigger now, but it was already very big 12 <laughs> or 13 years ago, we thought there are sometimes properties of the limit something like a thermodynamic limit in physics. There are properties of the limit that are going to characterize the system. And then, you know, other things are much finer. Mm -hmm. So how could we characterize those? And so we went and talked to Latsi Lovas, who was a member of our group, and Kadi Vestragambi and Vera Shoj, who are also great combinatorialists. And we said, well, so do you graph theorists have a, you must have a notion of a limit. What's the notion of a limit? And there was no notion of a limit, which was like, how could you wow. not have a notion of a limit, you know? And then when you begin to think about it, there are an infinite number of ways of taking a limit. If you come up with a really strong notion, then every graph, every network converges to the same point because it's, you know, mm -hmm. or no, a really weak notion. Then everything converges to the same point. Really strong notion with lots of specifications. Everything will converge to a different point. So... You really want one that's just right, where you retain enough that there are interesting features there, but that you don't retain so much mm. that everything is different, because you want to be able to get some idea of universality. And so we started coming up with different notions, and we came up with about six different notions. Some of them sounded very local, like, let's say I take a graph or a network, and I ask that as it grows, the edge density converges. Mm -hmm. And I ask that the triangle density converges and the four-cycle density converges. And for any finite graph, that density converges as the big graph grows bigger and bigger, you know, as subgraphs. Okay, so that would give me one notion of a, of a limit. And then there are other things that sound very global, like let's say all the max cuts of the graph converge or min bisections or uh, thermodynamic models, you know, or statistical mechanics models, uh, free energies on those graphs. Well, it turned out that these six very different notions all gave you the same limit. 
huh. for dance crafts. So we said, wow, that's, this is probably a good notion. And we spent many years developing this dense graph theory, although it was, and the limit object we called a graph on, although it was motivated by this, by having worked on, you know, web graphs and spam on web graphs, you know, it went off into math land. I mean, you know, over a thousand pages of mathematics. And then I was at NIPS, you know, the big conference neural mm-hmm. and information processing systems about four years ago. And um, somebody came up to me, David Choi from CMU, a young faculty member there, and said, oh, I'm using your graphons as non-parametric stochastic block models. And I was like, you're doing what? (laughs) You know, what is a non-parametric stochastic block model? And this is a joke, right? And he said, no, 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 we're all using them. And I was like, really? Wow. So what is a stochastic block model? A stochastic block model is... um, a model of networks that generates different networks with a fixed number of communities. So if I have a K community stochastic block model, there's going to be a probability that two sites within any of the K communities are connected to each mm-hmm. other. So like a P red red, P red green, P red blue, P blue green. And so there are going to be K choose two probabilities of connection. So I'm mm-hmm. going to have these K different communities. So maybe the people who are really into rock music have a certain probability of right. connection. And the people who are really into machine learning books have another probability of connection. And then what are the odds that someone who really likes rock music also really likes machine learning books? And, you know, so that's a stochastic block model. And you can generate random networks with that kind of community structure. Mm-hmm. You know, which people had been doing to model real-world networks with communities, be they communities of people, like on Facebook, or different kinds of networks that you might get in a biological system or in a physical network system. But then as the thing that you're trying to model, like the web, gets larger and larger and larger, in order to model it accurately, you need more and more and more communities. Mm -hmm. And the communities become more and more specific. So if N is your total number of individuals, of vertices in this community, nodes, your K, your, your number of different kinds of communities starts growing with N. And before you know it, you're overfitting. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you've got this huge number of parameters. Now I have K of N choose two parameters where, you know, K of N may grow like log or it may grow like a power or God knows, right? And so all of a sudden I have too many parameters and I'm overfitting. So what these people really liked about graphons was in the limit, we just got a function mm-hmm. which described this. And you could have smoothness properties on the function and other things that made it less susceptible to overfitting. Mm-hmm. And so practitioners had picked up these limit objects and started to use them to fit real-world networks. But at that point, there were essentially no statistical consistency theorems. So, you know, a, a practitioner will pick something up and will use it. And if it works or if it seems to work, that's great. Mm-hmm. But you might want to know, okay, is it possible to show under what circumstances it will work? And so when we learned about that, then we started proving theorems on this. And at the same time, we had just during that period 
finally started to be able to deal with not just dense networks. Dense networks are networks in which you're connected to a positive fraction of everybody else mm. on the network. Mm -hmm. Okay, which like that's not going to happen on Facebook. Right? <laughs> I don't. I'm not connected to a positive fraction of the people on. On Facebook. Unless you're extremely popular. Unless I'm extremely popular. <laughs> Probably Facebook would limit me at a certain point. Um, but you might have something like a power law graph or something like that where I'm connected to uh, – there, there are some sites that have very large numbers of connections, but others not so mm -hmm. much. And so we were finally able to deal with sparse networks, which mm. are what happens in the real world. In the real world, most networks that we see – are sparse, but with long tails, power law tails. So we finally were able to come up with theories of how to get limits for networks like that, and then how to do statistical consistency to fit them with graphons. And since then, we've done other things, like prove that in certain circumstances, you can do this in a differentially private way, so you can protect. And this is really important on a network because very often, the people you're connected to can reveal something mm -hmm. about you. So uh, people in 2009 were already able to show that they could, with high accuracy, guess your sexual orientation from the people you were friends with on Facebook. Okay, So we're currently working on things um, using graphons to do things on networks, which people have actually done in a crazy manner. Um, People on networks are connected to each other, mm -hmm. so they affect each other. Now, let's say that I was on some big network, and I wanted to test something out, and I decided to roll it out in Singapore, okay? So I'm doing an A-B test. I'm rolling it out, A, in Singapore, and, you know, and nobody else has it, okay? Well, some other people have connections to people in Singapore, so I can't test things about them because they're connected to people who – have the test being run on them. Or, you know, if you think of something offline, I can't just say I'm going to give a vaccine to this population and not to that population if the population is actually a network. Mm -hmm. Because if all your friends get flu vaccines, you are less likely to get the flu, even though you didn't get the flu vaccine. But if somebody right. is just looking at you, they're saying, oh, well, you see, here's a person who didn't get a flu vaccine and she also didn't get the flu. Well, on a network... The treatment that your neighbors get affects you. Mm -hmm. And so with some collaborators, we're now doing a project on how you would do, using graphons, how you would do A-B testing properly on a network. Oh, wow. With another group of collaborators, um, recommendation systems are actually big bipartite networks. You know, Netflix, I have movies on one side and I have people on the other mm -hmm. side and people have rated movies but, you know, how I rate the movie and my husband rates the movie, not independent of each other. You know, we probably watched the movie together. We probably discussed it. Not that we always agree, but the network structure makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So how do we do recommendation systems taking the underlying network structure mm -hmm. into account? Wow. Okay, so these are all things that people have just been assuming these are independent, and of course we know that they're not. And so these kind of crazy graphons, this math land stuff that we were doing, you know, now is really useful for all these real-world problems. So we're 
you know, we're still proving theorems about them, but we're also testing them out. And um, it's just, it's really exciting, actually, really exciting. Yeah, definitely. You gave a talk about it at Wimmel this past I year, did. which was excellent. I, I enjoyed oh, it very much. Thank you. Thank um, you. Have you seen anybody else in the space using these ideas, graphons, as applied to large networks in ways that you feel are unusual or unexpected? Well, there were people who were using them for recommendations, and that's how I jumped into them, using them for A-B tests. So when I start seeing these, mm. you know, then I jump in and start working on, on it as well. And sometimes the people who had started this stuff, but maybe since I know a little bit more about Graphon, so I bring that to the table, right? <laughs> to say the least, Getting yes. back to the discussion of mm -hmm. what you bring to the table, mm -hmm. we can get even stronger results on mm -hmm. what you're able to do, you know? So it's actually really exciting and you know I've I've been very excited by the number of people who are picking this up and working on it and it's just you know it's a way of viewing networks it's a kind of way of stepping back and viewing networks yeah definitely so, yeah it's, it's absolutely fascinating so is there a particular question that really excites you that you're working on now in the idea of graphons what are you well, really psyched about I, well so I guess the things on the recommendation systems I am really really psyched about um you know and I think we've got really good results there I mean we want to test them but we've got some great theorems and we want to test and see how quickly the the algorithm I mean the theorems involve algorithms mm -hmm. so how quickly these algorithms actually converge you know to see how practical they are fantastic so yeah and then there's other kinds of ML that I'm doing also that I'm super excited about. So this has more to do with my physics background, mm -hmm. and it's with some wonderful physics collaborators who I've been working with on and off for the past 10 years. So this has to do with neural nets mm -hmm. and why certain kinds of learning algorithms work so well on neural nets. Okay, so we just actually published a paper last month in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Learning Neural Nets to describe this. And it's a non-equilibrium statistical physics theory of learning neural nets. So physicists, in particular people who look at uh, statistical physics questions, have been looking at computational questions for oh, 10, 20 years now. And they have found that sometimes studying Equilibrium statistical physics gave them a good framework for understanding why things were computationally difficult mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Ansager Prize of the American Physical Society was just awarded last year to three physicists who really helped clarify that. But basically what they showed, so this is just equilibrium, it's not learning yet. Um, basically what they showed is that when you look at something like a satisfiability problem. So I have resources and I have constraints. It might be a case at problem, it might, might be something else. If I am trying to satisfy a case at formula and I have a lot of variables and very few clauses, mm -hmm. then I am typically able to satisfy it. Okay, just like if if I have lots of constraints for an airline, I'm trying to get this person to that place and this person to that place, but I have a lot of planes and I have a lot of fuel, I'm able to do it. So the who I'm trying to get where are my constraints and my, you know, airplanes and my fuel are my resources. And, you know, at a certain point when the system is over constrained, you can't do it anymore. 
can't get everybody where they have to be. But it turns out that they're right at the boundary where you just have a, the right balance of variables and constraints, a phase transition occurs. And as you get near that boundary, where there still exist solutions out there, they get really, really, really hard to find. Hmm. And what happens is that usually what you do when you're trying to solve a problem like this is you make some choices, and then you see that you're kind of stuck. And so you backtrack. You undo a few things, okay? Mm. And, you know, like uh, maybe you're trying to crossword puzzle, you're doing this, and you back, and you erase a little bit, and you try to backtrack, okay? And when the system is very under-constrained, it turns out that by backtracking only a few steps and then going down another branch of your tree and so on and then backtracking a little when, when you get stuck, you're able to solve it. And that's because the solutions are at a small hamming distance from each other mm-hmm. in the solution space. That's why the backtracking works. And what happens is that before you hit that phase transition, all of a sudden it's like your solution space shatters and the solutions, though they exist out there, are really far away from each other. The distance between them goes to infinity with them. Mm. And so you're not able to just backtrack anymore. So it becomes computationally difficult, mm-hmm. even when there are solutions out there. So then you step back and you say, what might be going on with neural nets? You know, we know we're, we're finding these solutions that are generalizable. What does generalizable mean? Mm-hmm. Well, In a statistical physics sense, you might think of generalizable as having other solutions nearby. Maybe they're not the absolute optimum, but they have a lot of other solutions nearby. And so we looked at the solution space of some very simple neural nets, the perceptrons, which is a one-layer neural net, Mm -hmm. the two-level community machine, a two-level neural net, where you could actually make calculations on them. You know, analytic calculations. It's not a black box. So you can make analytic calculations. And we said, what if we add a term to the function we're trying to optimize, which says that I want to have a lot of other states nearby me. I add an entropy term that doesn't belong in the optimization function. So I'm kind of driving it out of equilibrium with this term. Well, then it turns out, and there's no a priori reason to expect these to always exist, Mm. but for neural nets, it turns out that those drive you to some solutions which are not optimal, but they're near optimal, and there are a lot of other solutions nearby. They're generalizable. If I try to do that on other things which are not neural nets, like an easing magnet or something, there aren't states there. But here there are. Brings you to this space. It brings you to this space, this very dense space where I can generalize. And so then we said, well, could things like stochastic gradient descent, elastic stochastic gradient descent, dropout, all the things that are being used in deep networks, could those actually fortuitously almost be taking you to those states? And so now we are working with some people who do deep learning we're working with Leon Botu and Jan LeCun and those guys on looking at how adding this extra term to the optimization function 
takes us to these generalizable states and helps explain why some of these methods that seem to be very effective but, you know, are not, it's not apparent why they're effective, may be as effective as they are because we think they're taking you to this, what we call a robust ensemble of these generalizable states. So I'm super excited about that. Most of this so far has been on the level of theoretical physics, no proofs, no mathematics. Um, we're right now working with Leon Botu and others to try to put a little bit of mathematics around this, but we're super excited because, you know, I love the lens of physics. I love seeing the world of machine learning through the lens of physics. And, you know, interestingly, NIPS, of course, was started by statistical physicists, right? The two fields were, were very closely enmeshed 20 years ago, and they diverged from each other. And I think, you know, they're all, there's always some crossover, but I think it's really time for them to come back together in a deep way. Jennifer Chase of Microsoft. It's just really fascinating to hear about her work on graphons and the history of nerd. It was an amazing conversation. Yeah, she's an incredible character. I've been lucky enough to visit uh, her in uh, Microsoft New England and, and have dinner with her. Uh, she has such clarity of thought and such strength of character. Um, just another of those people we're really lucky to have in and around the field. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it for us today on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.